Uh, please stand for the scripture reading this morning. It is found in Matthew 10, verses 24 through 33. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you have whispered, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetop. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than the sparrows. So everyone who acknowledged me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. Good morning, beloved in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It is truly a joy to be gathered here again with the saints to honor and worship our God. May we never fail to see his many mercies and may we together experience his comfort. Well, I want to begin this morning by quickly reminding ourselves of where we are at in the context of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has viewed the landscape. He has seen the situation of the masses of people, and he has realized that they are like sheep that are lost with lack of a shepherd. As such, they were harassed and helpless. The ones who ought to have been their shepherds, the religious leaders of the day, instead had become wolves and were ravaging them. And so Jesus gathered together his close disciples and he commissioned them to go out as his representatives, to go out in his authority and bring the message of the kingdom of heaven to the harassed and helpless sheep. Well, as we looked at last week, Jesus made sure that his disciples would know exactly what they should expect to get as a response when they went out among the nation of Israel with the message of the kingdom. They were, in fact, being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and they needed to be prepared for what that meant. As payment for the words of life that they spoke, they would receive abuse and persecution, and that would come at the hands of their own countrymen and even the members of their own family. So the disciples were going to have to be wise in their dealings with men and wise in how they devoted their time because the days were evil and the time was short in which they could go out and proclaim the kingdom to the nation of Israel. Well, the disciples were also giving a, given a warning that we saw last week of what it would meant if they turned back from the course that Jesus had sent them on. 
Their salvation depended on their enduring in their faith until the end. Well, this morning we are going to continue that conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples as he begins by giving them an explanation for why they will be persecuted. But he is also going to give them a great deal of encouragement and comfort them for the task that is at hand. And then following this merciful comfort and encouragement will once again come a very strong warning about the consequences of being faithless to Christ before men. Well, as we prepare to turn back to the Word of God this morning, these breathed-out words of God in the Gospel of Matthew, I ask you to join me once again in prayer. Father, as we do each week, we confess our dependence upon you. All the preparation, all the knowledge that the preacher might gain are of, of no use if your spirit doesn't open ears, doesn't give the right words to say, direct even the right emotions behind them, and open ears to hear your word. Mercifully, Father, protect this congregation from anything I might say that is, is not true to your word, is not faithful to the context. But let there be no barrier to the truth of the message. Conform us to Christ. Let us understand what true comfort and encouragement is from the words of our Savior. And let us face the reality of hard warnings as well. Our comfort is not our goal this morning, Father, but our holiness and our faithfulness. That we might be a pleasing, soothing aroma to the nostrils of our Father in heaven. And we come boldly because of Christ and in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Jesus continued his discourse with his disciples by telling them, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus here describes his relationship with his disciples in three different ways. As a student and a teacher, as a slave and a master, and as a member of a household and the head of the household. Well, the first would have come as no surprise at all. That is actually the normal standard way that we understand Jesus' relationship with his disciples as a teacher and students. And the third might, have, might sound a little different from what we're used to seeing, uh, but it's nothing unheard of, and it's quite easy for us to understand the head of a house and those of his household. But the second way was more shocking, and it would have sounded much more radical. The whole structure of Jesus' relationship with the disciples, as I mentioned, was of that as, as of master and student. That's evident in the way that they followed him around during his ministry, the way that they deferred to him, the way that they obeyed him, the way that they took on his teaching. It is evident as we read through the Gospels 
that others recognized Jesus' relationship with his disciples in this way. Sometimes they would question the disciples about the words or the actions of their teacher. Sometimes they would question Jesus about the actions of his disciples. But to speak of his disciples as slaves, on the other hand, is actually unexpected. No other rabbi or teacher would speak of his students as his slaves. And no student of any other rabbi would embrace or accept that term being applied to them. Being called a slave was uh, no more palatable in the first century than it is now. This language of, of master and slave points to the unique authority that Jesus possessed that was unlike the authority that any rabbi or teacher before him had had. And it spoke to the kind of radical claim that Jesus could and did make upon the lives of his disciples. Now, we might be used to the language of, of a slave of Christ or a slave of righteousness, but that kind of language won't show itself commonly in Scripture until the apostolic writers will own that kind of language for themselves and for the church and the years to come. Well, under any of these descriptions, the meaning is much the same. Just as in all, the close connection between the greater and the lesser, in terms of association and reputation, is in mind. The reputation of the teacher or of the master or of the head of the house would overshadow the reputation of anybody that was under their authority. So children, students, or slaves would be viewed according to the one whose authority they were under, and they would be treated according to the feelings and the respect towards the one whose authority they were under. So the man at the top, so the head of the household, the master, the teacher, he would receive the greatest amount of honor and care by outsiders because of his station. And everybody below him would receive something less. Or if the master was going to be hated and treated poorly, which is what we are seeing in our passage today, so too would those under him yet often without the same measure or restraint. There is a, this, so this is the reason that Jesus' disciples were going to be persecuted when they went out among all the cities of Israel because they were closely associated with Jesus and they would receive the same kind of treatment that Jesus received. Turn with me just a few books back to John chapter 15. John 15, we'll start in verse 18. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they also would keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
So Jesus even later recalled giving his disciples the language of master and servant and reminding them that whatever he would face, they should expect to face. And of course, that is keeping in mind what he was about to face as he gave them that warning. Well, in our message this morning, Jesus referred to the head of the household being called Beelzebul. Well, this is the first time that we have seen this name in the Gospel of Matthew, though it is not the first time that that this name has been referenced or referred to. In 934, we saw the Pharisees accuse Jesus when he had freed a demon-possessed man from the demon of casting out the demon by the power of the prince of demons. Here, Jesus mentions being called Beelzebul, or the head of the house being called Beelzebul. And a few chapters later, in 1224, we'll see the Pharisees accuse Jesus once again of working by the power of the prince of demons and name him in that passage as Beelzebul. And that is the common understanding of the name Beelzebul in first, central, first century Israel. It was the name of the prince of demons. And so Jesus told his disciples, if the master of the house was called the Prince of Demons, there could be no doubt that everybody in his household would be seen likewise as well. Yet they would be seen as less important or powerful, yet still objects of disdain. Well, after explaining the reason for the persecution that was going to fall upon his disciples, Jesus began to give them reasons to have hope, to encourage them, to give them comforts, to give them reasons that they did not need to live in fear, even knowing the great kind of persecution that they were going to face in the years to come. Verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. The language of things being hidden, or being in the dark, or being whispered, all point back to the way that Jesus revealed the nature and the effects of his kingdom when he was speaking before the masses. Jesus actually makes this very clear a little bit later on in Matthew. You can turn with me there. Matthew 13, verses 10 through 15. Matthew 13, 10 through 15. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Throughout the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, he did proclaim the message of the kingdom. Just as John the Baptist before him, they proclaimed a message of the need of repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand. Yet the fullness of what that meant was largely hidden. And according to Jesus' words, was purposely kept from the understanding of the masses. Because the Messiah of God did not come in grand displays of glory to overwhelm the people and to call them to his banner. Instead, he came as a wandering preacher with a veiled message so that he would be rejected and ultimately murdered. But the disciples, as first-hand witnesses to the person, the message, and the work of Christ, the Son of the living God, these disciples would continue Jesus' work in a way that was much more out in the open, to carry his message in a way that was much more understandable. These were unimpressive men that would go forth and proclaim a message of glory and majesty, and through the work of God's Spirit, sent to them as a helper after Jesus ascended to be by the right hand of the Father, the work of the Spirit would grant them, the disciples, a greater understanding, would bring to their minds what Jesus had taught them and would open their eyes to things that they had yet not understood. And then it was their calling to go out and boldly and openly proclaim the message of the kingdom. Because all that had been hidden in the parables of Christ as he spoke to the masses would now be made clear. All the, the hidden meanings, the word pictures that they just didn't understand. Now that the Son of God had been crucified and rose from the dead and then ascended on high after after showing himself to hundreds of people, all those things that took place before suddenly would make sense as the Spirit brought back to mind what Jesus had told them would happen. All that had been hidden would be made clear. The disciples didn't need to fear. They were being encouraged to go out confidently because the message that had been veiled from the people during the earthly ministry of Jesus was going to be revealed now that he ascended on high. Rather than working to obscure the truth from those who would hear, God's Spirit would be powerfully at work within them to open eyes, to give them faith, to make them understand. As though Christ was saying to his disciples, do not fear, your message will be understood and it will have its intended effect on all for whom Christ died. Preach the gospel clearly. Preach it early. Preach it often. Preach it so that everybody will hear and boldly be the instrument of life and death. Death to those who reject the Messiah and life to those who would bend the knee. Well, the second reason Jesus gave them, gave them is why they did not need to live in fear because, was because there was only so much 
that men could do to them. And it paled in comparison to what the wicked themselves would face. That it was better to suffer on account of wicked men than to join them and be numbered among them in the day of reckoning. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, Jesus does not mince any words here. He went right to the most extreme of examples, lest any of his disciples think there was any kind of room for a a yeah, but kind of objection. All the suffering that they are capable of bringing to somebody, the worst that men can do to them is destroy their body. Men can kill you. And there may be and there are some very terrible ways that they can go about it. But once it is done, there is nothing else that they can do to you. And they can only do that once. And it's over. Now that isn't making light of of torture or murder and the horrible things that men have done to other men throughout the centuries. It is simply putting it into its proper perspective. Even if we wanted to take the extreme of the hypothetical, if some kind of gruesome torture was metered out over over an entire lifespan of years, the suffering that that person could receive could still only last so long. And the process, no matter how drawn out it might be, cannot be repeated. It, It has an end date. It will be finished. So even in the most extreme case, Jesus was telling his disciples not to fear men. Because that is the worst they can do. They can kill you. Of course, that would sound absolutely ludicrous to say, well, what's the worst they can do? They can horribly torture you for as long as they can keep you alive and they can kill you. That would sound ludicrous, except for the fact that Jesus compares it to something much, much worse. Man has the ability to torment another man for a lifetime, but that is as far as his power goes. God can and will do far worse to all of his enemies. Of course, we don't often talk about God like that, do we? It's not the typical kind of way we think about God. It's not the way we lead into a conversation with somebody when we're talking about God. It's another one of those things you're not going to see cross-stitch on some little old lady's pillow on her couch. Fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Well, in this discussion, we need to keep one thing very important in mind. When men seek to maximize the suffering they can inflict on another man, it is invariably going to be mixed with all manner of sin and injustice. Yet when God flicks far worse upon his enemies, it is perfectly measured and is in exactly the correct response to what is deserved. 
And that difference makes all, or that reality makes all the difference. Well, we don't have time this morning to give a full survey about what the Bible teaches about hell. Though we need to be mindful of some of it if we are going to understand how Jesus can say, you don't have to fear men because the worst they can do is destroy your body, yet fear God because he can do much, much worse. Hell is said to be the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. It is the place of eternal punishment, 25, 46. It is the place in which torment will be suffered both day and night forever and ever, Revelation 20, 10. Where the wine of God's wrath is poured out in full strength in the cup of his anger, Revelation 14.10. And everyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life will join Satan and his angels there in this eternal torment. Revelation 20.15. And as we're thinking about that, remember that the language of the lake of fire or the brimstone and burning sulfur do not and cannot adequately capture the horror of this place. As hell was created for spiritual beings, the defining suffering that is found there is spiritual. The physical descriptions are given to provide but a glimpse of the spiritual reality which we do not possess the words to convey. And everyone, angel or man, who goes there, deserves everything they receive. As do you. As do I. No worse reality can even be imagined. Beloved, we are called to be peculiar beings on this, on this earth. We are the ones who have been given an eternal perspective. We cannot live like everyone else. We cannot be held in the same kind of bondage and fear that holds everyone else. Read in Isaiah 8, 12 through 15. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So beloved, fear God, honor and respect him as Lord, and break yourself upon the chief cornerstone who is rejected, lest you find yourself underneath it crushed and ruined. So what, what can men do to me? What do I have to fear from a man? What are they capable of inflicting upon me? far less than I deserve. Yet what can they do for me? Should I give in to the fear of man and do what they want and go along with the flow? What can they possibly do for me? 
Well, they can do very little here and now and less than nothing beyond. So Christian, fear not. Because the suffering that wicked men can bring you is nothing compared to the suffering that joining them will bring you. So it is simply a matter of perspective. Jesus gave one more reason for his disciples not to fear as they were sent out as sheep among wolves. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are, are of more value than many sparrows. Well, I'm sure that for many of us, since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for some time now, had our minds drift back to the Sermon on the Mount, or in this language, where Jesus is teaching his disciples about not being anxious. Though in that context, he wasn't specifically speaking of persecution, There, Jesus was telling his disciples that they didn't need to be anxious. In fact, it was wrong. It was sinful for them to be anxious about what they would wear or what they would eat. Because God clothed even the common flowers of the field in majesty that the greatest of kings had never known. And he provided food even for the common birds who did not plant fields and gather in a harvest. And God's children were of much greater value than the flowers of the field or the birds of the air. The Gentiles worried and obsessed over their base needs, but God's people were to devote themselves to his kingdom and to his righteousness. They were to trust that everything they needed would be given unto them. That though men may kill the body, Even that cannot happen without the knowledge and the predetermined plan of God. Not even a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the sovereign hand of God, apart from the eternal will and plan of God. How much more consideration then do you think that God gives to his children? How much more does God care for and have plans set out for his children, even should they be struck down by wicked men. These children for whom he sent his son to die. Even the number of hairs on your head are known to him. Even if that's a little bit less impressive for some of us than others. After encouraging his disciples with these three reasons that they did not need to live in fear, even though they were going to face great evil at the hands of even evil men, Jesus gave them a great promise to sustain them in their darkest hours, followed by a grave warning that if they allowed the fear of man to silence them, they would face So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Beloved, in a very real way, our faithfulness to Christ in the face of the trials that we will face in this life will determine or be reflected in the attitudes of Jesus toward us in the day of judgment. 
Let that sink in for a moment. Our faithfulness to Christ in the face of persecution determines his attitude towards us on the day of judgment. We spend most of our time extolling the free gift of our salvation, this undeserved, unmerited favor from God, this this grace by which we are saved. And yet, there is also a direct connection to how we live on this life and what we can expect to experience after it is gone. We've seen something like this before already in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Well, it is to our shame that we often spend all of our energy in passages like this trying to undermine the clear teaching of the text in order to preserve our comfortable grasp on the soundness of our salvation regardless of the faithfulness or lack thereof in our lives. There is no contradiction in saying both that we are saved by grace, by faith, not of our works, and in saying that what we do in this life truly does determine what we will face when we die. Yes, the ultimate of our faith, our faithfulness ultimately to Christ in the face of persecution is a result of the work of His Spirit within us. The work of His Spirit that gives us the strength to endure. The work of His Spirit that gives us the strength to not be silenced, to continue to live faithfully for Christ no matter what we face. But even though it's the work of the Spirit, we have to also acknowledge without enduring in Christ, one cannot hope to have Him as an advocate before the Father in heaven. So Jesus gave both positive and negative reasons to endure in the face of persecution that his disciples were about to face. It's the same kind of help we find elsewhere in Scripture. Romans 10, 9 and 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And he goes on to say, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or Mark 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the promise before us is great, and it is glorious. 
if we confess Christ before men, we can be confident, no matter what happens to us in this life, that he will confess us before the Father on the day of judgment. We can be confident the wrath that we talked about earlier, that we all deserve, will remain far from us if Christ is our advocate, because he has already borne it. We be confident that even if our faithfulness is weak and feeble, that his faithfulness is great and perfect. The promise is great and glorious. Yet the warning is strong and definite. It's frankly terrifying. Deny Christ before men, and he will deny you before the Father. The promise is great, just as the warning of denying is strong and terrifying. Yet mercifully, Scripture also teaches us that what is required of us in this regard is not perfection, but faithfulness in measure with the work of God's Spirit within us. Beloved, that does not remove the threat from those who would presume upon the mercy of Christ. But it ought to remove the crushing weight on the struggling believer who has stumbled. As with most warnings in Scripture, the danger here is not in a momentary lapse or even a season of failing. The danger here is in a person's life being marked or defined by something. In this case, the danger is they're being marked by their faithlessness to Christ before men. Sure, they may make a profession at one time in their life. They may even cast out demons in the name of Christ, as we have seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Yet, if their lives are marked by faithlessness instead of faithfulness, they will be denied before the Father. A good example of what I mean by this is found in Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. We can be sure that Peter remembered the weight of what Jesus had said during his earthly ministry. Yet Peter denied Jesus three times. Yet he was brought to repentance he was restored, and he was used mightily in the church. And when we think of Peter now, we ought not mark him primarily by that weakness when he denied the Savior, but by what his life was truly marked by, which is his faithfulness. Because Peter would go on to suffer much for the sake of Christ, often being thrown in prison and he would do so boldly, even to the point of being killed himself. Every one of us stumbles from time to time. Sometimes in grand and obvious ways that cause a lot of damage to ourselves and those around us. A true disciple of Jesus responds with repentance and they set their minds to action. They care about being faithful. They care about being holy. And when they fall, they determine to get up and to live for Christ. 
It is not a little thing to them. It is a huge thing to them, and they weep about their failure before God. Those who fall and simply brush off their failure and remain apathetic towards holiness are false disciples, even if they claim the name of Christ. This isn't some sort of cosmic scale thing. This isn't a case where there's a giant scale set before us and those times that we confess the name of Christ are weighed against those times that we deny him before men. If you desire to be that calculated about when you can remain silent and when you can choose when it is convenient to acknowledge God's Son, hoping that these times you choose to associate with him will outweigh those times you do not, if that is how you approach this, then I offer you no hope this morning. I offer you no comfort in this passage. Christ's true disciples do not play such games with faithfulness and obedience. So what does it mean to acknowledge Christ before men? Often it means that we do what the disciples were commissioned to do, to proclaim the wonder of the gospel for all to hear, to command that all men must repent and believe. It can also mean that we do not mask or hide our otherness. We will be different than the world if we are obedient to Christ. And if we are openly confessing Christ, we won't try to look more like the world in order to better blend in. We will follow Christ out in the open for all to see. In the same token, we deny him when we refuse to call others to repent and believe. If we are silenced because we are afraid of what proclaiming the gospel will cause to happen to us, we deny him. We deny him when we choose ease and comfort over obedience. We deny him when we prefer the praise and affection of men rather than the pleasures of God. We deny him when we prefer the pleasures of this world rather than the sufferings of Christ. And we deny him when we turn back to what we once knew because the path on which he has called us is simply too difficult. Jesus' Jesus's disciples would face great temptation to turn back to what they once knew. The people that they proclaimed the gospel to as they went around all the cities of Israel would face tremendous temptation and pressure to turn back to what they once knew. Yet as seen in the warnings in Hebrews, just as in the warnings of Jesus here, the consequences of turning away were so grave they were almost unthinkable. Turn with me to Hebrews and we'll start in chapter 6, 4 through 6. It's Titus, Philemon, and then Hebrews. If you get to James, you went too far. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, 
to restore them again to repentance. For they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Turn forward just a few pages to Hebrews 10, starting at verse 26. See a similar warning. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Tremendously strong warnings to the Jewish believers because it was so important that they held firm, that they continued the race, that they endured regardless of the pressure they would face. And until the day of judgment in Israel, there would be a most intense temptation to turn back to the way that they had known before. Peace with their family, peace with their countrymen was but a turn and a step away. They had the option to go back. It was there waiting for them. The allure of comfort was waiting for them. After 70 AD, there would be no more temple or sacrifices. The heart of the religion. There would be none of that to turn back to. That would remove much of the immediate pressure, but it would not remove all of the pressure to turn or to apostatize. That continues through the centuries. Even though we do not find ourselves in the exact same circumstances as Jesus' disciples, we do face the same kinds of temptations in our lives to one degree or another. The intensity of the persecution of the church ebbs and flows throughout the centuries, along with the intensity of which the believers face the pressure to abandon their faith and to turn back to the ways of the world around them. And yet there will always be struggle before those who follow Jesus. Always be a struggle whether they will pay the price to remain faithful to Christ or if they will follow the flow of the masses down the broad road of destruction. And this has been true and will be true even in those times when the dominant culture is more or less Christian. Beloved, the way that our society treats the Jesus of the Bible, and I say the Jesus as of the Bible as opposed to the effeminate, weak-wristed, pansy man that is put forward by the faithless and apostate churches across the land, the way that they treat the Jesus of the Bible will show how they will treat those who are in the process of becoming more like him. We can still expect no better than the treatment that our master receives. 
Remember, the greatest thing that can be hoped for by a disciple is that they will become like their master. That carries a unique force for the Christian. Everything the Christian aspires to is that they might receive what they have been promised in Christ. That the Christian willingly endures whatever suffering and persecution they might receive on account of the gospel because everything they hope for in this life and in the life to come is found only in Christ. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and truth Right, true righteousness and holiness. Or Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved, too often we struggle against faithfully confessing Christ before men, both by word and deed, because we overvalue the things of this world. Because we don't actually believe that God can and will supply both for our needs and for our greatest desires. Too often we live as though we fear what faithfulness would mean for our life that it must mean that we would wallow in poverty and misery and insignificance as if those conditions were somehow more glorifying to God. I think we also struggle with faithfully confessing Christ before men because we underestimate the seriousness of the consequence of apathy. Or perhaps we see the Christian life, the true, the, um, the true, dedicated Christian life, the faithful Christian life, we see that always as tomorrow's ambition. Beloved, embrace the promise and the comfort of Christ that he will care for his own. And heed the warnings about what clinging to the trappings of this world will cost you. Jesus can and will supply for your every need. And he will do so above and beyond what we could ever deserve or hope for. Never doubt that Jesus is faithful and that Jesus is good. Today is the day to live faithfully to his calling. Today is the day to openly acknowledge the message that we know will be foolishness to the world that is lost and dying. And remember that eternity really is on the line.
Father, we thank you for your words of warning. Thank you for your words of comfort. We thank you that Christ is so very much more faithful than we could ever be. Give us a heavenly perspective. Let us see each day in accordance with its consequences now and in eternity. And let us devote ourselves to those things that are honoring and good and beautiful and pleasing to you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.